No one say when he is tempted, I am, be, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will he has brought of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for the privilege to hear it preached this morning. I pray that you would tune our hearts uh, to hear your spirit as you speak to us today. Speak through, read your servant as he brings the word. And um, God, we thank you that you are truly good, that you are altogether righteous, that you are holy. God, that you are never tempted by evil. Um, but we can completely trust and rely on your goodness and on uh, the good future that you have for us who believe. Um, God, draw us closer to yourself this morning. Uh, help us to, to do business with you, to, um, to deal with the areas in our life that you're calling us to deal with, and, and just to submit to you in, in humility and repentance and surrender and readiness to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. You know, I do pray that we would do business with God this morning. I appreciate that prayer, Mark. You know, everybody is chasing happiness. They are. You are. Everybody is doing what they believe will in some way make them happy. I've always been fascinated by 1 Peter 3.10. Peter begins that verse... Whoever desires to love life and see good days must turn away from evil and do good. And Peter addresses everyone or whoever wants to love life and see good days because he knows that deep down every person desires to love life and see good days. Well, temptation, which James is going to address for us in this passage, temptation works on our desire for life and good days and deceives us into thinking that something outside of God is the way to get that. Your heart is deceived into thinking that something sinful will be good for you, that it will give you life and good days. A woman who used to visit this church and for whom I prayed uh, many a prayer and worked with and knew her pretty well, uh, she, she had an affair with a sales rep that called on her at work and she left her husband for this man. And in explaining her decision to Cindy and me, she said, I know it is not what God wants but I've decided it is best for me. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy thinking. She foolishly believed that to really enjoy life, I am going to have to go against God. The constant message of the world that we are all, every one of us, 
are bombarded with is that sin will make you happy. The world says one night stands, sleeping with your boyfriend, affairs, pornography, drinking, partying, self-indulgence, and self-promotion will make you happy. The world says, come on, have a little fun. Lighten up. Compromise with your principles. Dress seductively. Fit in. Be popular. All this is what will make you happy. And this message, it comes from kids at school. It comes from conversations at work. It comes from, from movies, from sitcoms, from advertisements. And the message relentlessly that the world has is sin is good, sin is fun. And James tells us that while sin promises life and good days, it delivers death and bad days. You cannot get good things by sinning. Good gifts come down from the Father. Only what God has for you is good. Anything, any choice, any attitude, any habit that is not in line with God's will for you is terrible for you. Amen. Good things come through God. God's way is always best. Doing marriage God's way is always the best way. Handling your sexuality God's way is best. Having attitudes that God wants you to have is best. Speaking words that God approves and wants you to speak is best. God's way results in loving life and seeing good days. Living any other way ends in death and a death-like existence. So your battle, your battle with any and every specific temptation no matter what temptation it is that, that you may be easily entangled with, your battle with every spe- specific temptation is largely won or lost on whether you believe that God is good or that sin is good. In chapter 1, which we're looking at here in James, he pivots from trials, which we've been talking about the last few weeks, to temptations. Uh, The fact that the same word is used for both shows that they are closely associated. And a trial can become a temptation very easily. A person who is hard-pressed in their finances may be tempted to embezzle or to cheat on their taxes or to lie or to submit some sort of phony report or exaggerated, exaggerated report to somehow make a little bit more income. A person who is having difficulty in their marriage, may be tempted to have an affair. A person who is having difficulty with a brother or sister at work may be tempted to neglect fellowship altogether. A person in, in humble circumstances may be tempted to jealousy. And some people reach the conclusion that God has made things so hard for them that the only way out is to sin. Some reach the conclusion that God is somehow to blame for them turning to sin in their situation. Now, they might not put it just like that, but people say things like, I just don't have the power to resist that some people have. Or God just expects too much from me. The pressures were just too great. I had to do it. 
Or my wife makes me sin. She does things and says things, and I explode, and I just can't help it. And Adam, Adam was the first one to say that. That woman that you gave me. She gave me the apple. He put the blame on her. Or I had a dysfunctional family. And you know, people with my background just never can get over this. God made me this way. I am predisposed to behave this way. What do you expect me to do? My wife didn't meet my needs. Anyone in my situation would probably do what I did. In some way or another, all of these attitudes are saying that God tempted me to sin or that God put me in a situation to fall. Therefore, I am not really to blame. My sin is understandable. It's excusable. And the blame for sin is shifted from ourselves and unto God. And James, and one of the things we all have to love about James is that he is totally honest and totally blunt. And James, in his bluntness, says, baloney. Don't you dare say that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And I'm going to get into this more later on in the message, but I'm going to say this right now. If there is a persistent sin problem in your life, pornography, lust, envy, gluttony, drunkenness, anger, cursing, self-pity, or even anxiety or bitterness, the reason you may be in bondage to that sin is that you have never acknowledged in your heart that no one else is to blame for it. The root problems, James says, is your own desires. Notice that James does does not blame parents or spouses or a dysfunctional family or being tired or a hard day with the kids or a bad day at the office or any other kind of disorder or issue. He wants you and I to acknowledge that the problem with sin or having to do with sin is in us and it has to do with your own desires. Now, ESV translates this, uh, your own desires. Uh, NASB, New American Standard, says lusts. Uh, NIV says evil desires. Uh, the, the same word for desire is used many places in the Bible in a good sense, and then sometimes due to context, it's, it's, in, a, it's in a bad sense. And desires in and of themselves are a good thing. You know, life would be totally boring if you had no desires. I have no desire to do anything, to have anything, to see anything, to go anywhere. You know, just if you had no desires, life would be very boring. And God in his goodness always provides a good and a righteous way for desires that he has given us to be fulfilled. The problem is when we want something too much or in a way that is out of bounds. For example, the Bible says the marriage bed is pure and undefiled. So within the safety and bounds and the beauty of marriage, God says that sex and the desire for it is a pure and a good gift of him. It is totally undefiled. It is all good. 
But out of bounds, the same verse says it leads to judgment. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I think we would all say it is a good desire to provide well for your family. Uh, you know, I, I personally wouldn't want my granddaughters to marry a man who had no desire to provide for them who just wouldn't get up and go to work and do anything to take care of them. And Paul said those who don't provide for their own family are worse than an unbeliever. But even a good desire like this can turn into lust or greed to become rich and to just have more and more and more. Uh, Paul, Paul also said those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. So my point is that many good desires can lead to excess and to sinful indulgences. That can be true about your desire for food, your desire to eat, your desire to do well at work, even your desire for sleep. All of these things could be good desires, and yet all of them can be turned, according to the Bible, into sin, into gluttony, into excess. Proverbs 2013, even about sleep. I mean, sleep's a good thing. We'd, I, I, man, when it's about 9.30 at night, I desire to go to sleep. But it says, Proverbs 20.13 says, Do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. So when desires become lusts, when desires become excessive or for things that are outside the, the good and loving, wise boundaries of God's word and God's will, that is the problem. And temptation, there's something unique about temptation that is different from trials. Trials sort of land on you. They just happen to you. There's not necessarily anything that you do that brings them upon you. But temptations require your cooperation to go along with them. Temptation is like a con artist. It is your desire for what that con artist promises that makes you fall for the con. I don't know if this is helpful to you or not. I found it. I, I thought it was helpful. Helpful to me. You know, the most famous uh, the most famous con is probably called the Nigerian email scam. Has anybody ever got one besides me? Okay, a lot of you have. You get an email from someone claiming to be a Nigerian prince who under some dire emergency that's happening in Nigeria needs to move millions of dollars out of the country. And if you, well, there's a couple different ways it works, but one of them is if you will send them a small amount of money and your bank account number, they will, uh, to help them, they will give you thousands, maybe hundreds of thousand dollars that will be released into your account when that money becomes transferred from Nigeria to the United States. And some people will send money. Some people will send money. And of course, there, there is no Nigerian fortune, there's no Nigerian prince, and there's no money coming into your bank account. But a money scam like that works only if you have such a desire to get rich quick that you ignore the danger signals. And basically, James says temptation works the same way. There's an outward enticement, but it only works because of an evil desire that you've allowed to grow up and flourish in your, in your heart. The ESV says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the, 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 original, the words in the original language are words that were used 
in, in, in hunting and in fishing. So temptation is like a fishing lure, but it is the, it is the fish's attraction to it that makes it work. Now, just very briefly, not to get off track here, but I think, I think that James also may be a, a kind of perversion uh, about God's sovereignty. We believe strongly that all things are from God, but some may pervert that and say, well, all things are from God, therefore I am being tempted by God, and God is the author of my evil. But James reacts strongly to this, and he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone with evil. And then in verse 16, he defends the pure goodness of God, again, which we're going to get to a little bit more detail later. But James seems to be concerned here that anyone would make God out to be evil. He does not want the nature of God to be defamed or impugned in this way at all. Sin and evil do not come from God, but come out of our own hearts or from Satan. God is sovereign, and man's sin did not catch him off guard, and he planned out our salvation before the foundation of the world. But to go further and say that evil comes from God is to defend God, and James says you should never do it. Calvin himself strongly denied, denied that God is the author of sin. He wrote, when Scripture ascribes blindness or hardness of heart to God, it is, does not assign to him the beginning of the blindness, nor does it make him the author of sin so as to ascribe him to blame, the blame. The bottom line is, James says, our problem with sin is within ourselves and do not blame God. All right, I want to move on to some steps to overcome sin. And I want to start out with something that is really not in this passage, but I, it, it is assumed it's, 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 it's there maybe in a hidden way, uh, particularly in verse, uh, verse 18. But to overcome, overcome sin, first of all, something must happen to change your desires and to release you from the power of sin. The, the, the people without Christ, people without God, the Bible says, are slaves to sin. They're held in a certain type of bondage. It doesn't mean, I don't think that they're sinning every second of every day, but there's a bondage to sin. There's an inescapable uh, quality. Something is holding them back. And without Christ, every man is a slave to sin. So something must happen to change you, change your desires. And that happens first by being born of God and by having the Holy Spirit enter your spirit and making you alive to God. And when God saves you, he made you a new creation. John says in 1 John that the seed of God is within you now. And you have a, you have a new set of desires. You cannot continue to live in sin. You have a new set of desires to do good, to practice righteousness. Uh, Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God, uh, the grace of God has appeared. And what does it do in our hearts when the grace of God appears in your life and comes into your life? What does it do? It teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. And the grace of God works in a positive way to teach you to love God, to 
to love other people, to love righteousness. He has set his spirit into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's, that, it's God, the new birth coming within us that gives us these whole new set of de- desires. So we were released from our bondage to sin by Jesus Christ. And yet we do face an ongoing battle with sin. But we can overcome sin. And James gives us some very important uh, things to help us. He tells us how. First of all, to overcome sin, you must not blame God or anyone else for your sin problem. We've touched on this already. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. But let me say this. No matter if the sin problem that you have is with a what we would call a gigantic sin problem or even a small sin problem, you cannot blame or excuse it by blaming someone or somebody else. If you are always late for work or if you eat too much or drink too much or watch too much TV or look at bad pictures or bad movies or read trashy novels or you're addicted to Oprah or Ellen or Dr. Phil or just the desire to become rich or successful, if you give in to gossip or slander, if you complain, swear, refuse to forgive other people, or tend to be critical and judgmental, or explode in anger, or whatever sin you are easily entangled with, you must acknowledge that you yourself are the primary source of falling into this temptation and sin. Satan has only played the con man. You have agreed to be conned. Others may in some way have put you in a difficult situation, but you yourself are responsible for responding in a sinful manner. James says that your response to temptation, either resisting it or caving into it, is strictly a matter of your own responsibility. So if you want to be free from sin, don't blame anybody else. No sin is dealt with in your life until you accept full responsibility for sinful attitudes, words, or actions. Freedom, freedom, freedom begins by saying, I have been sinning and I am responsible for it. You are not a helpless victim, but a responsible party who, in Christ... And in the power of the Holy Spirit can refuse to be carried away by sin. So that's really no, number, number one. To overcome sin, you must not blame God or anyone else for your sin problem. Number two, caving into sin is a process. And to over, overcome sin, you must stop the process at the beginning. Charles Stanley has uh, a, a group of things, a whole list of things that he called lies in regard to, to, uh, to temptation. I'm going to tell you a, a few of them I've woven into the message. The first one is this. It is a lie that we fall into sin. I just fell into sin. Just, just, I was just walking down the street and fell. You know, just, just like I was walking down the street and there was this manhole and the cover was off and I just fell into it. There, it's a process. And... It starts with sinful desires or passions within your, within your heart that are allowed to hang around. Instead of crucifying 
sinful passions, as, as, as it says that we are to do in Galatians, instead of crucifying sinful passions when they are coddled or pampered or accepted. That's well, just the way it is. It's just the way I am. That's just the way everybody is. We are preparing ourselves to sin. The process works like this. There is the bait. There is something outside of you, a person, an object, a pleasure, a drink or a drug, an opportunity to gossip or to impress, and it pulls at you. And that's, that's, there's, that's, the, that's the temptation, okay? Charles Stanley also said, it is, a, it is a lie that temptation itself is a sin or that God is disappointed and displeased with us when we are tempted. I agree with that. Temptation itself, in and of itself, at least the initial, the initial temptation is not a sin. Martin Luther famously said, uh, and I may have to have Lana help me out with this, but you, uh, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Lana can correct that for you if I don't have it quite right. But, okay, and there is a big but after this. If you spend time looking at the bait, thinking about the bait, imagining taking the bait, imagining the pleasure you think you will find in that bait, you are inflaming your passions, you are turning them into powerful lusts, and you are preparing to sin. And you need to admit that to yourself. You know, some people will, will go down this road, they think about sin, they imagine it, they think, oh, this is the way it's going to be, it's going to be good. And they think, well, just because I haven't actually gone out and done it, but, but we can actually inflame lusts and passions in our heart. You may glance up, for this for men, you may glance up and, and see a seductively dressed woman. The first glance is not sin, but it is where, is where you take it from there that can make it sin. There is, in other words, there is a period of enticement, and James uses that word. You're, you're dragged away and enticed, and this is, again, this is actually used, a term that is, was used uh, in James' day for for in, in the field of, of hunting and fishing. And you just sort of get the picture of this, uh, little, this little innocent fish <laughs> there under, in the weeds or under this branch seeing the bait going by, and then there's this period of enticement, and he is dragged away and enticed by his own lusts. So there's a period of enticement. There is the actual taking of the bait and as James puts it, sin is conceived. Now, it, it's interesting to me that James switches from the metaphors of hunting and fishing to, uh, to something else altogether. He shifts from the fishing metaphor to using the human life cycle of conception, birth, and death. 
We all know conception takes place when a man and a woman come together in the act of marriage to make a child. In a sense, it's a very graphic illustration of how sin is conceived. In the same way, sin is conceived when, when you, with your lust or desire, join yourself to an outward opportunity to sin. And James says, then sin is conceived or it gives birth to sin. And when that sin, or if you will, when that child, that sin, that, that child of sin that is produced from, from this unlawful uh, joining together, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And it's almost like, I, know, I don't want to press this passage too far, but it seems to me that it's almost like sin is seen as a child who, when fully grown, turns on you and murders you. And James is saying, sin has a terrible end. Sin results in death every time. And one reason that James gives us this progression, so that we will see the progression, so that we will see the outcome, and so that we will stop at the very beginning of the process. John Owen said, Rise up mightily against the first actings of your temptation. Do not give it the least ground. That's the way you fight temptation. Romans 6.12 says basically the same thing. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its evil desires. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every appearance of evil. You know, people who fall into a pattern of sin. And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about, we, we all stumble in many ways, okay? I'm not talking about that. But people who fall into a practice of sin. People who fall into uh, adultery and sins such as that have been tolerating evil and compromising with evil in secret for a long time. Romans 13, 14 says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. In other words, don't, make, don't even make a way for yourself to sin. Run away, get away from it. As soon as something looks like it might go down that path, stop, run, flee, make no provision, turn away from it. It leads to death. So, secondly, so that's the second thing. Caving into sin is a process. To overcome sin, you must stop the process at its beginning. Number three, to overcome sin, you must see. You must see where sin will take you. You must see where pornography will take you. It will ruin your marriage. It will end in divorce, and there's much worse consequences. But... Things, things will take you to a, sin will take you to a very bad place. James says sin leads to death. Ultimately, sin leads to eternal spiritual death. You know, in Ephesians, when Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to turn away from sexuality, he says, don't, don't, don't let it even be named among you. Don't, don't even get involved in coarse jesting. He says, because it is, on, it, is, it is because of these things 
that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, I know this sounds a little ominous, maybe might even be a little scary for some, but James is saying, hey, I'm, he's addressing believers, and he's saying people, people are going are gonna to be under the wrath of God for those things. Don't even dabble with them. I think death here in this passage in James can also mean death as opposed to what is life, what is real life, what is abundant life right now. In other words, sin will lead you into a death-like existence. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, 6, talking about widows, and I can't go into the background of it, but it, but it says talking talk about these, these widows, if, but she who lives for wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. In other words, she is wasting her life. She is dead to the purposes for which God saved her. Sin saps your strength. It oppresses you, enslaves you, makes you feel guilty and defeated. It leads to lack of confidence before God. And the, the ultimate end result of sin and of practicing sin and of, and of living continually in sin is separation from God. It's hell. Everything about sin is the opposite of life. And you know, I, I, I believe that those who truly belong to Christ will not continue to practice sin, that they are saved, they will persevere to the end and be saved. I'm, you know, I'm not, not trying to go there, but I'm just help, trying to help us see the terrible consequences of sin. Sin will never do you any favors. It ruins your life, it brings misery, and the worst consequence in the world is death. And James says that is where sin leads. To overcome sin, I think you have to have a very clear picture of where sin will take you and you begin to hate it because of that. We are, peop- we are to be people who love righteousness and hate sin. You know, I listened to a message and I, I thought I would look up the, the name of the guy who I, I, nobody ever, ever heard of. It was some obscure uh, message from some obscure church, just like we are. <laughs> on youtube but he he but he asked this question he said okay well how if you have these sinful desires for something or or desires for something that are outside the bounds of god's will what can you do to change your desires and i thought he gave a very interesting illustration Uh, what he did is he he pulled out a little bag with a with a, a donut he said this is a fresh baked donut from you know fantastic bakery in town and Anyone who loves donuts can come up and get it. And some dear lady walked right up and grabbed that. You know, I'm not going to guess who would, who would do that here at our church if I did that. But some dear lady just ran right up and grabbed that, that donut. And that's great. That's great. Then he said, I have another donut. Pulled out another sack, another donut in it. And he said, I can tell you something about this donut that will make you, that will make you change your desire for it. And he said... Prior to the service, I filled this donut with rat poison. Well, what James is doing in verse 15 is he is showing us the rat poison. He's saying that sin leads to death. It needs, leads to mir- misery and ruin and tragedy. He's saying it's filled with rat poison. You don't want it. 
You know, the world glamorizes sin, but it never tells you the truth about sin. I get so sick, and I don't watch them, but I get so sick of hearing about movies that, that glamorize uh, adultery and the bridges of Madison County. It was way, way, way back, but, but some photographer comes to town and has an affair with a farm lady. I mean, that's sick. It's sick. The world never tells you the tragedy, the broken homes, the unbelievable guilt, the shame, the horrible pain that it inflicts on somebody else, or the eternal death that waits all who, who practice continually sin. Number four, to overcome sin, you must become an undeceived person. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Do not be deceived into thinking life and good days are found in sin. Do not be deceived into thinking there is no hook in the bait. And furthermore, I believe James uses this verse as a transition, a very important transition. And furthermore, do not be deceived into believing that there is any good for you apart from God. And from his gifts. And that's, I love this transition in this context of verse 17. Every good gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. In the exercise of his will or by his choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The lie is that sin, small sin, big sin, anything about sin is good. That's the lie. The truth is God is good. God is good for you. God is good to you. All his good and perfect gifts are given to you. You can enjoy everything God gives you in righteousness and joy with no shadow of sin. God is good. There's a, there's a, there's a little saying, you know, some churches say, you know, God is good. The congregation repeats back, God is good, and all the t- or God is good all the time, right? And, I, you know, I, I've always felt it a little cheesy, but yet... There's a lot of truth in that if we, if we understand the depth of that. God is good all the time for all your life, for all eternity. John said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I mean, if you are a believer, I mean, there is such fantastic security in this. I mean, such fantastic hope for the future, such, such a safety to abandon yourself totally to God. Because he is so good, there's no darkness in him. We may not understand some of the things that happen to us, the tests and trials and so forth, but we are assured that everything about God and from God is totally good. There's nothing malicious, nothing mean-spirited. He is for you totally, and it's all good. I, I pray to God that somehow we could go home with a picture this morning of how fantastically good 
God is. He does not change from being good one moment and then evil another moment. That's, that's what people do. You know, they'll, they'll be nice to you. And then just, just when you're expecting them to always be nice to you, they'll, you know, stab you in the back or say something that really cuts and hurts. God never does that. He is for you all the time. He is good for you all the time. He will never do anything to you that is dark or evil or destructive. He is a good father. Jesus is the good shepherd. He has proved that he loves you more than life itself by sacrificing his own life for love of you. God always acts for whatever is most advantageous for your perfection, for your wholeness, for your completeness. If you want life and good days, I guarantee you, you want God and not sin. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind, a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Out of his own goodness, or in other, other translations it says, out of his own will, by an act of his own will, by an act of God's own good will toward you, he chose you and he saved you and he caused you to be born again of his word of, or through the word of truth. Out of his goodness. It is because of God's goodness. It's because of God's amazing goodness that you have the new birth. It's out of his goodness and by his own will that he made you his child and gave you all the blessings of salvation. You, are, you, are, you have love. You have acceptance. You have favor. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have heaven ahead of you. You have eternal happiness and joy. Paul said he saved us so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of grace, of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why, why would we want to turn against a God like this and dabble in sin of any kind? He made us to be first fruits. The first fruits were the first, the first of the harvest, harvest, the first ripe sheaves of grain from the harvest. And they were offered to God as a sign that the entire harvest belonged to God. To be a first fruit is to belong to God. And that's a great and a good privilege. You belong to this God as a first fruit. This God who is amazingly and perfectly, is perfectly good. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk outright, uprightly. No good thing does God withhold. You know, Moses prayed, God, show, show me your glory. And God said, I will ca- make all of my goodness to pass before you. Man, that's my prayer this morning, that, that somehow God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, would, would make all his goodness pass before us and we would want to sell out to him and not to any sin that we've been tempted to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for James and the way that you speak through him in bluntness and in honesty. And we need that. Lord, we need somebody to be direct with us. Lord, we need to be told the truth. 
we need, to, we need to be awakened out of deception and the deception of, of sin. Lord, we ask that you would awaken our eyes, that we would, that we would not be deceived in any way, but the, the, our, our hearts and our eyes would be awakened to see how amazingly good you are, to worship you in your goodness. What a wonderful attribute, characteristic. God, you are good. We say you are good all the time and for all of life and for all eternity. And we entrust ourselves to you, not to a path of sin, but we entrust ourselves to you because you are so good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.